is about time for us to uh, begin. Uh, so glad that you're here tonight. Uh, just to make sure, uh, I want you to know my name's Brian Lee. My wife, Clell and I have been members here for about a year uh, and are grateful to uh, have the honor to uh, serve in this place and in particular, uh, to be able to uh, share in Bible study with you over these next three weeks. And I thought about what we would do during this block of time that I could hopefully uh, begin and end uh, neatly. We'll, we'll find out whether that happens or not when we get to the end of it. Uh, so I landed on what I'm going to call Kingdom Parables which necessitates us defining some terms first. And the first term is the word kingdom. Now, we here in America don't think much about kingdoms. That's uh, sort of foreign to us outside of our uh, strange fascination with the British royalty. Uh, but in the first century, uh, kingdoms were a big deal. People understood that. Israel, for instance, had a uh, and Judah had a succession of kings that varied in their uh, effectiveness and quality. And then, of course, uh, surrounding them were other nations that also had kings and kingdoms. Rome, in particular, was a kingdom of sort, although it was generally thought of more as an empire. Uh, but the idea is that a kingdom is ruled by king and that it um, has control over a certain space and group of people. The king does. Now, again, that uh, may be difficult for us to put uh, in our own context, so let me see if I can give you a working uh, example. I want you to picture two, uh, let's say there one's about uh, seven and the other one's about nine. They're in the back seat of the car. Some of you already know where this is going without even saying anything. Uh, Mom is driving uh, the, in, the front, in the front and she's hearing in the back a uh, conflict that is brewing. He's looking at me. Quit touching me. You're on my side of the, of the, of the, of the seat. Move over. And on and on it goes. They are having a conflict of kingdoms. This is my kingdom. I rule my space. And don't you dare cross over into my area because I'm the king of my kingdom. Well, mom is uh, getting a little weary of that. And she's beginning to wonder if it may not have been a good idea, after all, to have given them all some Benadryl before the trip started so they would just sleep through it all. But too late for that. And so eventually she gets tired of it and uh, she ends up saying, don't make me pull over. You know how all that goes. She is uh, demonstrating that you think you are the king of this kingdom, but there is a queen that is in charge of the whole kingdom. Okay. Well, that begins to get us a little bit of an idea what we mean when we say kingdom. Which brings us to a particular kingdom, and that is the kingdom of God. 
which is a dominant theme throughout the New Testament, and certainly a major uh, place of uh, importance in terms of the parables. Dallas Willard uh, gives us this working definition of the kingdom of God. He calls it the area of God's effective rule. That's pretty good, isn't it? The area of God's effective rule, where the the, what he wants to have transpire is what transpires. It is the way it ought to be. So that's the kingdom. The parables are stories. Uh, the word means to, something that is cast alongside of something for the purpose of, of illustrating it. It could be a simile, it could be a, a metaphor, it could be a picture story, because if you think about it, people tend to not only think in pictures, but they're far more likely to remember a story as they are to just some particular teaching. It was a common uh, teaching method that folks used in the first century that Jesus took advantage of. Um, and what would often be the case is, and this is true in the parables of Jesus, the story would not be something that actually happened, but it's close enough to what actually happened that it could have happened. And it would be something that everybody would go, oh yeah, I get that. I can relate to that. I understand that. I've been there with something like that before. And it gives it a chance to resonate. Now, sometimes in the parables, you will uh, have a very specific given understanding of the parable. Jesus will tell the story and then he'll come right along after it and say, well, here's what the story meant. On other occasions, however, he just sort of leaves it open-ended. He tells the story and allows the listener to make up their mind as to what they want to do with it. Ultimately, these are stories that uh, call for some kind of response. And because they're kingdom parables, parables that describe for us the way it ought to be if God's area of effective rule is allowed to transpire, Jesus would often say, he who has ears, let them hear. Uh, because part of understanding a parable is the willingness to take in the truth of the parable and to adjust accordingly. So that's what we're, we're meaning when we talk about kingdom parables. So with that said, uh, I want to, uh, to divide this uh, over the three weeks this way. Tonight, we're gonna talk about the realm of humility, repentance, and grace. And then next uh, Wednesday night, we'll talk about the domain of opportunity, response, and accountability. And then on the last week, it'll be the province of compassion, mercy, and joy. Now, what you'll notice is there's always going to be some overlap of all of this. And uh, we, we, won't, we won't worry about it because everything doesn't fall you know, in just a nice and neat place. So, humility. I don't know if this story is true or not, but uh, it was reported that uh, at one point, uh, Muhammad Ali, 
was on an airplane and the announcement came that it was time to buckle up seatbelts. Well, he wasn't exactly interested in buckling up his seatbelt, so he didn't. The stewardess came by and politely reminded him that it was time for him to put his seatbelt on, to which he responded, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> and her response in turn was, Superman don't need no plane either. <laughs> so, put, so put on your, your seatbelt. Now that's an example, uh, rather exaggerated, I guess, of what we would say is, is pride. And pride is the chief um, foundation of all the other vices that we struggle with. We see it all through the Bible, people who struggled with pride. I think, for instance, of Saul. Saul is threatened in his pride by David's popularity and seeks to eliminate him. Jonah uh, feels prideful, feels superior to the hated Ninevites. Peter, in his self-confident way, is promising that I'm going to go with Jesus to death if necessary. And then you find James and John in cahoots with their mom for preferential treatment in Jesus' coming kingdom. And we could just spend the whole evening just delineating example after example after example of the issue of pride. But for the people that have yielded to the effective rule of God, it is the opposite of pride. It is the necessity of humility. And Jesus told a parable about that. It's called the parable of the guests. It's found in Luke 14, beginning at verse 7. But before we actually look at the parable, a little background helps the the story stand out a bit more. If you were to back up into Luke chapter 13, you would see Jesus warning about prideful religious people who believed they were entitled because they were God's people. And so Jesus told them of a coming banquet of the kingdom where people from all over would be seated in, uh, at this uh, banquet, even those who had no expectation of even being invited would be there. Sadly, some of, of the ones who thought they deserved to be at the banquet would actually be the ones who would be left out. And so in, in uh, the 14th chapter, Jesus uh, heals a man on the Sabbath the guy was struggling with some sort of swelling issue. And on the heels of that, Jesus enters into the home of a Pharisee for a meal. Here's how it goes beginning at verse 7. Now he began telling a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Um, now, in, in the first century, there was a, um, a kind of a pecking order. It sort of reminds me of Downton Abbey. You know how there was a precise place where everybody was supposed to, to be seated, uh, depending on how important you were. And in the first century, the person who was the most important to the host would be seated closest to the host. 
So in this particular instance, Jesus notices everybody's gathering and they're all clamoring and initiating and probably doing a little bit of maneuvering in order to get the coveted closest seat to the host. And so Jesus noticing that, uh, he said this to them. The one who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then in disgrace, you will proceed to occupy the last place. But whenever you are invited, go and take the last place. That's out of a sense of humility. It's the thought that the very fact that I have even been invited is surprising and shocking. I am honored to even be included. And so to put myself in the, the place furthest away from the host is perfectly fine for me because I get to be in the presence of the host. And so it says that the one who invited you will come and he will say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are dining at the table with you. Now notice the type of honor this is. This is not a, a kind of an entitlement honor. I deserve to be honored. I have the right to be honored. You should be honoring me. I'm more important. I'm more special. On it goes. This is a bestowed honor. It is an honor that is a gift. You, are, you almost find yourself shocked by it all. For as verse 11 says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this thinking about this issue of pride, Jonathan Edwards, one of the great religious leaders in our country's history, uh, wrote a lot about many things in the spiritual life. Some of those might be considered to be a bit uh, strident by modern standards. But I do think he understood the human soul very well. And so he wrote what he called the seven signs of pride. I share them with you because if humility is a mark of the kingdom, if humility is what is seen when God's uh, effective rule is being allowed, then if we start recognizing the presence of pride within us, then we have to conclude, therefore, that we are missing out on the benefits of God's effective rule because we are trying to crowd that out with our own, uh, ourselves, advancing our own cause. And so here are the seven signs of pride according to Jonathan Edwards. The first is fault finding. While pride causes us to filter out the evil we see in ourselves, it also causes us to filter out God's goodness in others. Thus the prideful are quick to point out the flaws in others, even if those same flaws are evident within themselves. We're looking for fault. 
we're looking for someone who has uh, not met whatever standard that we think they should meet. Um, and there is almost a, a, a joyfulness in catching them in the fault. And interestingly, we may be doing the very thing that we are condemning and criticizing in the other person, but we don't see it. Why wouldn't we see it? This is the part where you respond <laughs> back. Why, why wouldn't we see it? We don't want to. We're blind. We're blind. Okay. We don't want to. Because if we see it, well, not only that, but what does that do to our sense of entitlement? I'm better. I'm superior. We lose the footing for that, don't we? Fault finding. It, it gets harder, by the way. <laughs> the second one is a harsh spirit. Those who have the sickness of pride in their heart speak of others' sins with contempt. And we'll talk more about that later. Irritation, frustration, or judgment. It has no, it has no sense of one's own struggles with sin and thus feels permission to be condemnatory toward others who struggle. Now I'm going to take a, a, a poll. And this is one of those polls where you don't really have to answer it if you don't want to. Because I already know the answer, okay? And, and, the, and the question is, do you struggle with something? Well, again, you don't have to raise your hand because I'm going to raise it for you. Yes, you do. Even if you don't think you do. Now, if you're struggling, what, what, is it, what, is it, what do we mean when we say we're struggling? What is that? We're struggling with some sort of... of uh, character issue or behavior or whatever. What, what do we mean when we say we're struggling with that? Okay. Okay. We don't like that we do it, but we just keep doing it anyhow. Okay. Again, we're, we're tracking. All right. So, uh, and we don't like that, do we? Uh, we wish you had to go away. And we've tried, and we've prayed, and we've confessed, and we've done all kinds of stuff, and we struggle. Still with me, all right? So that's you. You've got your struggle. And what do you want more than anything else from everybody else about your struggle? You want people to be kind and nice and tolerant and understanding because it's your struggle, right? Well, that's, that's you. And here's this other cat over here. And, they, and this is, they got their own struggle. But it's not your struggle. It's a different struggle. You don't have any problem with that one. If you've got a pride issue, then over here you're saying, oh, I'm, I'm needing you know, to be patient with me. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get better. And then we are condemnatory and harsh because this... I can't believe they struggle over that. I mean, if they really love Jesus, they would have that kind of problem. Of course, I really love Jesus. I've got my problem, but that's different. You see how ludicrous the whole thing is. That's, that's pride. 
All right, here's another one. Superficiality. When pride lives in our hearts, we're far more concerned with others' perceptions of us instead of the reality of our hearts. Essentially, we're focused on image management rather than a true inner transformation. I adjust to the expectations that are immediately in front of me so that you will, I, I want to project the image that I think you need for me to look like. It's not really who I am, but it's the image that I'm projecting. Now, do you know me? What do you know? The image that I projected. It's a false image. All right? And I work very hard to manage this so you don't know me. Because I'm not willing to deal with me. Because me's got some weaknesses and struggles and problems and and I don't, I'm too prideful in order to admit that that's true of me. So I'm going to project this image that I have. Defensiveness. Number four, when pride is unchecked within, we will tend to resist any corrections or rebukes rather than to prayerfully consider them. This is the primary means by which we manage the image that we want to project toward others. We dig in our heels, and rather than actually consider the possibility that something is right that we're hearing that's uncomfortable to hear, we just double down on the resistance. Fifth, presumption before God. Pride causes us to believe that God owes us for believing in him. We no longer have a sense of reverent respect. It is a spiritual form of entitlement. Now, how do you think that would play itself out, let's say, in a congregation? A sense of entitlement. I'll give you, I'll, I'll answer the question for you. First church I served, um, about 40 souls came on Sunday morning and sat in oak pews, no cushions. Okay. Well, some of the uh, folks got uh, kind of wised up over the years and decided that uh, they didn't like sitting on hard pews listening to me for however long I, you know, droned on. Uh, so they decided to bring pillows. Not bad. Except when they left, rather than taking the pillow home with them, they left them to mark their spot. And so what happened was, this, this was a Sunday morning, a guest comes. If you've got 40 people, I mean, you are just ecstatic that you've got a guest. I mean, you want to go kiss them on the lips. You're so happy to finally have a guest. And so this guest is coming. And what did they do? Horrors. They sit where the pillow is. Church member. This actually happened. Watch this. The, that pocketbook is the uh, the person. <laughs> Just stared her down until she got up and moved. Huh? Entitlement. That's my pew. 
I've been here years. You're a newcomer. You're not as important as I am. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, the rest of us have the back row already covered, right? All right. I understand. All right. Number next. This is number uh, six. This is hard, isn't it? I mean, really, just, this is tough stuff. Desperation for attention. Pride is hungry for attention, respect, and worship in all of its forms because the prideful person feels superior toward others, at least outwardly. Sadly, like a narcotic, pride craves consistent doses in order to feel properly appreciated. And the way that tends to track is one of two ways. Either tracks in, I'm going to ramp up the things that I think you want so that you will appreciate me. Or two, I'm going to get angry that you're not grateful enough to be in my presence and all the stuff I do for you. So I'm craving this approval attention. Why is that a problem? Why would that be a pride issue? Feeling of superiority. Okay. Kind of all about us. Yeah, it certainly is all about us. What do you think? Why, why is this craving of attention an example of pridefulness? Put yourself in the opposition of others. Kind of a look at me, look at what I do, look at how hard I work, look how committed I am. It's sort of like Martha, you know, and Mary and the Mar Martha thing, and she loses in her mind over her sister not helping. Look at me, look at what I'm doing. Craving attention. Number, number last, seven, neglecting others. Pride prefers some people over others. It honors those who are deemed by the world as being worthy of honor, giving more weight to their words, their wants, and their needs. Prideful people are especially attentive toward those who can reciprocate in some fashion. So here's, the, here's what I'd like for you to do with that list. Um, if you're so inclined, just to take that and sit with it before the Lord when you've got some quiet. And just work through the list. And the prayer would be essentially, Lord, uh, if any of this is in me, I need for you to show me this. Because if humility is the sign of your effective will being realized and pride is blocking that from transpiring, then I'm missing out on all the benefit that comes from being a part of this kingdom that you came to build. I'm missing out on all the benefits of it. 
robbing myself of it. Humility, it's a mark of the kingdom. The second one takes us to another place and that is the issue of repentance. And I wanna put slash confession because they, they sort of track together. This brings us to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Listen to the story. Now, I also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. The words trusted and viewed are present tense. And in the Greek language, the present tense denotes continual habitual action. They kept on trusting themselves. They kept on viewing others with contempt. Now the word contempt means to despise utterly. It's viewing others as nobodies. Um, and I, I wrote some thoughts about uh, contempt. Um, Contempt is often much more about assumptions that we make about who a person is rather than an assessment of their actions. Once contempt is in place, there's little space for being open to them and little interest in their betterment. I call it the Rhett Butler syndrome. You know how Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hare had this sort of contentious relationship and gone with the wind at the very end. Rhett's had his fill of her. He's out of there. And you go, oh, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I don't know what's going to happen to me. And her response was, frankly, my dear, I won't say the rest of it because you know it. Okay? That's a contempt statement. I don't care what happens to you anymore. You don't matter at all. Jesus is talking about people who were like that. And then he told the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, viewed as a paragon of virtue, in his own eyes at least, and the other, a tax collector, the ultimate symbol of a worthless person. I mean, you couldn't be called anything worse. Well, Gentile would be just about a notch under. But being a tax collector, I mean, you were a traitor, you were a creep, you were every awful word you could think of, that's who they were. The Pharisee stood and began praying. Now, that's nothing wrong with that. It was a normal posture of the day. He began praying this in regard to himself. Now, there is another way of translating that that has a little bit more of a bite to it. And it says he began praying to himself. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? God, I'm going to emphasize something here, you'll get it. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, crooked, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all I get. Did you happen to notice a word standing out there? I, okay. That's his self-orientation operating here. He's saying, I'm better than this guy, this 
tax collector, dis totally dismissive toward him. He does things that uh, honor God supposedly, even exceeding in some cases what the law requires. But the tax collector in the story, standing some distance away, no sense of entitlement to approach God at all, was unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his chest, a sign of contrition, saying, God, be merciful to me. Propitiate for me. Cover my sin for me. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Now here's where confession and repentance track together. Uh, there, it is both an initial turning to God, and we often think of you know, repenting of your sins and trusting Jesus, which is true, but it's also a continual turning to God. The word repentance means a change of mind. That's where repentance transpires. Confession is the owning of the fact that we have uh, ventured off the, the right course. Now, there's both an unhealthy confession repentance and a healthy confession repentance. The unhealthy is not feeling any need for it, like the, the Pharisee in the story. As far as he's concerned, he's arrived. Well, if he has, he's the only one that's ever pulled that off, right, other than Jesus. That's one form of unhealthy confession and repentance. The other is to allow it to turn into a form of self-condemnation where we start loathing ourselves because of the sins that we have or have done. Even if we believe maybe God might happen to forgive us, we keep berating ourselves. That's an unhealthy form. The healthy is first to own our sinfulness, not cover it up, not excuse it away, not blame it on somebody else, but own that which we have done. We turn to God in honest, heartfelt confession, and we accept the cleansing and the renewed relationship. So the tax collector, back to him again. Not turning his eyes even to heaven, beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. And notice the word justified means more than simply being forgiven. It means that we now have a new standing with God. Now you may be uncomfortable with this label, this, what this guy said when he prayed, be merciful to me, the sinner. Let me run this by and see what you think. It seems to me that, um, that as you're walking with the Lord and the relationship with the Lord becomes uh, closer, 
the more serious we are in our walk with him. That we become more acutely aware of how other we are than him. Um, things that some people might not even think of as being a deal at all are for you now a huge deal. I, I, I think of a, a particular person in mind. I won't, they're not here. Uh, but this, this person... Um, would make fun of his wife in front of other people. Um, thought he knew pretty much how to do everything better than everybody else knew how to do it and would tell you so. And felt perfectly okay about that. Deacon. Sunday school teacher. Hmm. You think if he started walking a little bit more carefully with the Lord, that there might be some moments when he would say, Oh Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. That would start bothering him, don't you think? Now the issue, and we're going to touch on this again, is not groveling. Not groveling. We're owning the reality of it. Uh, because we can't receive from God what he wants to give with clenched fists. Confession is a way of opening to God, who is always interested in renewing and restoring us. So we've got humility. That's a mark of the kingdom of God, God's effective rule. And we've got this confession and repentance. The last word, and we'll close on this tonight, is the word grace. And of course, this takes us to the famous parables of the recovering of lost things in Luke 15. Beginning at verse 1. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners, and the word sinners there would mean the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame that were just talked about in chapter 14. People that were viewed as being under God's curse for being in that condition. All these people were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees, religious leaders of the time, scribes, the lawyers of the day, began to complain, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's a result of them drawing close to him. Essentially, their complaint is, if Jesus really was this great man of God that people seem to think he is, that he would know how horrible these people are and he would stay away with, from them and have nothing to do with them. So knowing that and hearing that, and that's what drives the stories, Jesus began to tell them the first one. He told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and just lost one of them, the word lost there means perishing, 
does not leave the other 99 in the open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. A persistence. He doesn't think to himself, well, I got 99. What's one lost? Just one. No, he's going to miss him. No, I don't even know which one it is. No. He goes after it. And when he finds it, he looks down at that sheep and says, you no good, awful sheep. I ought to just kick you out. I'm going to turn you into mutton. No. He puts it on his shoulders. Why? Because the sheep's probably been wandering so long, it's just too weak to walk. He puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing, the shepherd assuming the burden for the sheep. And when he comes, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over the 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Now, he's not suggesting that these had no need. That's what they thought of themselves as having no need. But the rejoicing comes over the recovery of the one. He goes on. Or what woman? If she has... Ten silver coins, the word there is drachma. It's not clear exactly how much that's worth, but uh, it's not like, oh, I lost a penny. It wasn't no big deal. I've even known people that said that they got home, they emptied out all the pennies in their, they just threw them in the garbage. I would not do that, but there are people who do that. No, no, in the first century, you, I mean, every cent you could possibly hold on to. It's of great value. What woman, if she has sin, 10 silver coins, loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully, notice the intentionality again, until she finds it, perseverance. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me. I found the coin which was lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One. Then he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the estate that is coming to me. Basically, I don't want to wait until you kick the bucket. I want what's coming to me now. Boy, how, talk about disrespectful. It's almost like saying, I wish you were dead. Whoa. So the father divided his wealth between the two sons. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, which is a, an idiomatic phrase, which means he liquidated his assets. He sold off everything. And went on a journey to a distant country. We don't know where the distant country, it doesn't make any difference where it is. It's away from where the father is. And there he squandered his estate in wild living. Reckless, the word wild. And we don't know what he did there, but it was not a good thing. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. Probably hadn't planned on that. And he began doing without so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens 
of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed pigs. The citizen would have been a Gentile. So here he is, a good Jewish boy, under the control of the Gentile who were thought of as being made by God to fuel hell, to feed pigs, which would be in essence going to hell. And he longed to have his fill of the carob pods. Carob pods are grown in, in the Mediterranean area, uh, normally given to um, livestock. It was sort of the, if you have nothing left else to eat, you would eat a carob pod. Sort of like uh, spam enchiladas or something like that. <laughs> Long to fill it with the pigs were eating no one was giving him anything. Notice he longed to do it. It didn't say he did it. Which means he either couldn't bring himself to eat pig food or he wasn't allowed to do it by the owner. The pig was of greater importance to him than the boy. And he's alone. But when he came to his senses... Boy, that tells us a lot. We're out of our minds when we're apart from God. And left unchecked, we are, our minds become deluded. And we end up believing lies. And it just continues to spiral downward. But when he came to his senses, how many of my father's tired laborers have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here from hunger. I'll set out. And go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. See, sinning against God is what ultimately leads us to sin against others. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired laborers. Boy, you have no sense of entitlement in that at all. So we set out to come to his father. He had to leave the far country. You can't get home and be in the far country at the same time. And I wonder, I wonder if he rehearsed this speech. Something tells me he probably did. Get it, I want to get this right. So he set out and came to his father. But he was still a long way off. His father saw him. What does that tell you about what the father was doing? looking for him. And he felt what? Compassion. The word compassion means moved in your guts. That kind of, I mean, just visceral response. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And note again the initiative here. And the son said to him, he's got this speech down. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he gets interrupted. He's never allowed to finish the sentence. Because really, repentance is not so much about the words that are said as it is the attitude of the heart that's turned. 
But the father said to the slaves, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, a sign of sonship, sandals on his feet, unlike servants who usually went barefooted. And bring the fattened calf, something usually reserved for special occasions. Slaughter it. Let's eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come alive again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Did you notice that in all three of those parables? The, the, the sense of celebration. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things be. And he said to him, your brother's come. And your father is slaughtered the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. I would say due to contempt for his brother and contempt for his father for granting such an undeserved celebration. He's not willing to go in. And his father came out and is pleading with him. Notice the desire of the father for the older son to be brought into the celebration. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you. That's how he viewed his relationship, his servitude. I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, no acceptance that this is his own brother, when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, how does he know that? Wonder if he's, I wonder if he often wondered, boy, I sure wish I could go to the far country. I know what I'd do. It's interesting how when we get prideful, we think we know everything. You slaughter the fattened calf for him. That's, that's a pretty in your face, isn't it? Notice the reaction of the father. Son, you've always been with me. And all that I have is yours. I mean, I've not held anything back from you. I've given you everything I had. But we had to celebrate. Because this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. That's grace. Have you ever wondered, what, what would it be like to be God? What would God feel about stuff? I think sometimes he feels like Jeremiah described it. His eyes are like a fountain of tears. He looks on his people, broken, straying. Or like Jesus, as he was nearing the city of Jerusalem, he looked out over the city. You could almost see him just shaking his head going, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You've stoned the prophets and done more. And how... Even knowing that, I would, was willing to 
like a, a, a hen gathers her chickens under her wing. I was willing to do that for you, but you were just unwilling, broken hearted. And then the flip side. A sheep, coin, and a son. And it becomes a cosmic celebration. When Clell and I were first dating, you know, I'm trying to do this boyfriend stuff right. And so I went to service merchandise. Remember that? That's the greatest place in the world. So service merchandise, and I bought her a pair of Lindy Star earrings. Now, back in the 70s, those were something. Yeah. So uh, I gave them to her. I didn't tell her they only cost about 19 bucks, but I took the price tag off. But I'd given them to her. She loved them. Fast forward a few weeks, she was singing in a, a concert with the, one of the chorales at Belmont. And we were at a church in the fellowship hall after it was over and there's, you know, we had college kids to get free food and all that stuff. And, and uh, so she did that and got changed and, you know, we left and fast forward and she called me on Monday. I can't find my earrings. I think I, I must have left them somewhere at the church. As soon as we get out of class, we got to go get those earrings. Okay. So uh, we go and she goes into the sanctuary, looks in all the chairs up in the platform. No, not there. Goes in the robing area where, you know, you got, you know, right there. Well, the janitors had come by now. And college kids are not necessarily known to be neat. Okay, you understand this? And I think it was nachos and cheese and taco. I mean, it's just, and, and you know, it kind of spills on the floor and you've got this just nasty, nastiness on the floor. And the the uh, the janitors are sweeping all that up and there's this big pile. Cheese, taco meat, hair, nasty, nasty stuff. And right, right in the middle of it were two Lindy Star earrings. And she was about to reach down and get us. Oh, well, don't worry about it. We'll just go get you another pair. It only cost nineteen dollars. <laughs> well, she wanted that pair. So she reaches down into the cheese and the tacos and the hair and all the yuck. That's how much that was worth to her. That's what the kingdom of God is like. God looks upon us of supreme value, supreme value. 
and he'll do anything. He'll move heaven and earth. He'll even send his own son to take all the yuck onto himself so that you can now be back with him where you belong. That's the kingdom. Henry Nouwen, Henry Nouwen put it this way as he reflected on it. If I can find it. God rejoices. Not because the problems of the world have been solved. Not because all human pain and suffering have come to an end. Nor because thousands of people have been converted and are now praising him for his goodness. God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has been found. Let's pray. Lord, all this brings a bit more meaning to your prayer for your kingdom to come for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's making it the way it's supposed to be. Help us to cooperate, Lord. Help us to open our fists. Help us let go of the pride and an honest confession be able to receive the rejoicing. Because Lord, it's not that we're having to talk you into it, grovel enough that you're reluctantly granted. The problem is it's us. Help us to open our eyes to see and have ears to hear of your wonderful kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, part two.